good evening. Uh, my name is Sushil Vadwani. Uh, I was a student here a long time ago and then a member of staff. Uh, I'm now a governor uh, at the LSE. Um, I'm very, very pleased that David Smith has agreed to talk about his new book uh, over here. Uh, and it's great to see so many of you here out of term time. Uh, I've known David uh, a long time. Uh, I read his columns for several years before I first had the privilege of uh, meeting him. Um, and uh, I'm not sure David knows this, but he is one of the few economic journalists who over the years has regularly moved markets in the UK on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> uh, I mean, typically on a Friday afternoon, you, you get a lot of rumors. This year, the rumors have all been about Greece leaving uh, the Eurozone. Uh, but in past years, when the Bank of England still moved interest rates, uh, you'd often get a rumor on a Friday afternoon that David's column uh, was predicting a rate cut or a rate hike. Um, but anyway, um, in terms of, I, I don't want to stand between you and, and David's talk, but, but there are some formal things I need to tell you. Um, so first, uh, if you could put all your phones on silent. Second, that the event is actually being recorded. Uh, third, uh, David's going to speak for between 45 minutes and an hour. Uh, and that will leave plenty of time for questions. Uh, and fourth, uh, there will be a book signing taking place after the event, uh, and, and, and David has kindly agreed uh, to, 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 to sign copies of the book. So, thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sushil, and uh, uh, it's a great privilege uh, to be uh, hosted, chaired by Dr. Sushil Wadvani, who's um, uh, a very old friend and one of our, our most uh, distinguished economists, uh, a former, former member of the MPC and uh, uh, a very uh, great, great economist and um, alumnus of this institution. And thanks to the LSE for, uh, for hosting this. Um, it's, it's, this is not going to be a kind of uh, just, just uh, a, a run through the book. Um, Otherwise, there'd be no point in any of you buying it. But, so, uh, so, uh, but uh, uh, what I want to do is just sort of uh, talk about a few themes that, uh, that struck me as I was, uh, as, as I was doing it, uh, and also, uh, I suppose, the, um, the sort of themes that have, have either stayed with me as I've, uh, as I've reported the economy over, over many years and some of the new ones. Um, so... Uh, and as you'll know, you know, an, an enormous amount of thought goes into uh, choosing the title of a book. Um, uh, I, you know, Harper Lee's new book, I think, was the product of hours and hours of uh, editorial meetings. I can tell you that no thought at all went into the, uh, the title of this book. Um, I, uh, I decided a long time ago uh, I wanted to write a book called um, Something Will Turn Up. Uh, and, uh, of course, it was based on uh, uh, Mr. Micawber, uh, and uh, the idea that, uh, you know, however bad things are, something always, uh, something always turns up. But I think it's, it, was, it was quite a nice analogy for, uh, for the British economy, uh, which is mainly what I'm going to talk about, um, because that is in general what happens. You know, however bad things seem, uh, something turns around, something turns up, 
and, uh, and things, things get a little bit better, perhaps just as a prelude to them getting worse again. But something does turn up. And there are many times over the, over the years when, uh, you know, I think we've all been assured that um, the British economy was about to fail in some desperate and terrible way. You go back to the, uh, the 1970s and uh, the IMF, before the IMF crisis, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a headline, Goodbye Great Britain. Uh, more recently, in 2009, uh, the global financial crisis, Britain was apparently finished. One prominent uh, U.S. fund manager said that we were sitting on a bed of nitroglycerin, and, and uh, others said, you know, sell everything you've got in sterling or sterling assets. You know, the U.K. economy was in, was in terrible trouble. Um, but something did turn up, and, you know, it usually does, and I, I think with, with a modicum of uh, sensible policies and a few compromises, something will even turn up uh, for Greece uh, over the next uh, year or so. Um, but I, don't, I, I think it's important to say, too, and I'll come on to this, that it doesn't just sort of turn up. It's, this is not just some, you know, string pulling the economy back onto a, a trend. It's not just some invisible hand. What policymakers do, what politicians do, what members of the uh, MPC do is important. Policy matters and making the right decisions at the right time uh, is, also, is also important. So I'll come on to that. Sometimes the economy does have to be pulled back from the edge by politicians and their advisors, by policymakers, by monetary policymakers, uh, doing the right things at the right time. So in the, in the book and briefly in this talk, I will, I'll talk about some of those uh, policymakers and, uh, and what I thought of them. Um, so this is the, uh, the theme, if, uh, if this is working, hold on, no movement so far, hang on a second, let's try the, uh, aha, that's better. Um, so that's the book, you know, you know that. Um, but four themes I want to discuss. One is the uh, performance of the economy over, over a fairly long period. Second theme is the people, those are the policymakers and the politicians. Thirdly, the crises, and the, the, you know, the crises that have both affected the British economy uh, uniquely, but also those that have, uh, we've been caught up in, which are global in nature. And finally, I'll say something about the, uh, the future. Uh, so those are my four themes. And in terms of you know, where the book starts and where I start, it's very much in the, you know, the period when Britain was... Uh, the manufacturing powerhouse, uh, you know, in the, 19, in 19, the 1950s, the UK economy and UK manufacturers had many advantages, uh, not least among which was that much of continental Europe was devastated. We still had uh, Commonwealth preference, so we almost had guaranteed markets. And it was very much a, uh, a manufacturing-dominated economy. Uh, and so th there are some of the numbers there. And, you know, extraordinary numbers for the trade surplus in, uh, in manufacturers, sometimes, you know, as much as 10% of GDP. The share of global uh, manufacturing exports was enormous at that period. Now, of course, things change and things, you know, and, uh, and economies evolve. And to some extent, you might say, well, you know, this is what happens. Uh, get over it. You know, manufacturing, uh, manufacturing's relative decline is a, is a well-known story. But one of the things about, you know, growing up in a, an industrial area in the West Midlands is that we really believed that this was the permanent state of things. I mean, we really believed that uh, the British was best, that, you know, that made in Britain or made in England were badges of quality. 
and that this would be the permanent state of affairs. I mean, I don't think, you know, certainly, you know, as the 1950s went to the 1960s, people started to, to, to recognize that the UK's relative performance was not perhaps that strong. Uh, but there was, this, there was this powerful belief in, uh, in UK industrial uh, supremacy. Now, some people would say that, you know, that was always a, a sort of false belief. You know, you can go back to 1851, the Great Exhibition, and even then, people were worried about the superiority of some German products in relation to UK ones. But, you know, this was a strong belief, and this happened. Then, I think, in, in quite a sort of devastating and, and sudden way, um, it all came to an end, or didn't come to an end, it all declined very rapidly. So this, one, this, this single decade, 1973, the first oil crisis, 1983, after the first recession of the, uh, the Thatcher era, all the things which we perhaps ignored uh, but were underlying weaknesses, including uh, you know, the worst industrial relations uh, in, the, uh, in the Western world, perhaps poor management, decades of underinvestment. Uh, the fact that you know, all those markets that we'd relied on, particularly those markets in the, uh, in the Commonwealth, they wanted to develop their own manufacturing industry, so didn't want necessarily just to be uh, consumers of, uh, of UK exports. And this enormous complacency, which you know, I think we're all prey to, that somehow British was best, British manufacturing, because it had always been around, uh, was, going to be, uh, was going to be around and strong forever. And in 10 years, I mean, you know, one, one example of the, you know, the, the, the abruptness of the uh, decline in UK manufacturing is that between... Uh, 1970 and 1980, uh, the foreign share of the UK car market went up from 14% to 57%. You know, and this, you know, in the 60s, we had a, a market where people tended to buy British. Buying British was loyal and was also, you know, was, was, was favoured because of, for, for tariff reasons and all those, all those things. Suddenly, that changed and all these chickens came home to roost. And you see, you know, the abrupt decline in an economy that, you know, for, for some had, you know, 35, 40% of, uh, of employed people engaged in manufacturing to this very sharp decline from the late 70s onwards to the position we've got now where, you know, we are, as the slide says, a, uh, a post-industrial economy. Now, coming from where I do, you know, you... you the tendency would be to see this as a sort of great tragedy, you know, these old industrial areas, and not just in the West Midlands, uh, experiencing, uh, you know, this abrupt decline, both relative and absolute. I mean, it was, you know, as recently as 2010, UK manufacturing output was only the same as it was in 1973. So this was a period where manufacturing output didn't grow very much while the rest of the economy grew. But the, I suppose the, the disturbing thing for those who sort of believe in the manufacturing story uh, and believe, you know, that, you know, can't we get this back? Uh, the question I'm most asked in emails from readers is, why don't we make things anymore? Of course, we do make things, but we don't make as many as we used to. Um, is, you know, we can't really have a proper economy unless we have a larger manufacturing sector. But the, the slightly disturbing thing is that the decline of manufacturing coincides with an improved relative performance for, of the UK economy. Now, I don't, you know, I'm, not, I'm not claiming cause and effect here. This is a chart uh, from the LSE Growth Commission. So it, was, it originated in this, uh, in this uh, very uh, institution. And what it shows is, it's, it shows the, the performance in per capita GDP uh, 
pre and post 1980. There's nothing magical about 1980. You know, if you are um, uh, conservative, you would say that happened to be when the you know the Thatcher effect started. But you know, it's 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 not just that. It's not it's not as simple as that. But in the period from 1950 to 1980, essentially everybody else's GDP per capita grows more rapidly than the UK. So you see that in continental Europe and the, the depleted countries where, and, and, and also countries like France, where you have this very rapid period of catch-up, strong economic growth, and GDP per capita catches up very quickly with the UK. And then from 1980 onwards, UK per capita GDP grows more rapidly than any of these other countries mentioned on here, grows, grows more rapidly than other G7 economies. So something shifts, and that something shifts even alongside this, uh, this abrupt uh, decline in, uh, in manufacturing. It's not because I don't think, although there are some success stories, particularly in the 1980s in terms of attracting inward investment, it is not because the UK suddenly becomes a large investor. You know, the, one of the, the, the classic weaknesses that we have, which is underinvestment, does persist throughout the entire period. So the red line on this chart is UK investments as a percentage of GDP, so it's, it's private sector investment plus infrastructure investment. So the, the problem of UK underinvestment uh, persists, so, so we didn't suddenly uh, you know, discover the virtues of, uh, of large-scale investment. I mean, in fact, if you look now at the differences between productivity performance, say, between a country like France and a country like the UK, it is largely explained by much higher levels of per capita investment in France than in the UK. So that weakness has, uh, has persisted. There have been periods where investment has been stronger, uh, but that is not the explanation. I think the explanation is, you know, that this whole series of things uh, that suddenly happened and some of them might have happened anyway some of them are directly as a result of you know the election of 1979 ushering in a government which was determined to sort of curb the power of the unions make the labor market more flexible a more pro business environment uh, more incentive based uh, tax system so lower uh, direct taxes and openness is very important. I mean, I think at a time when, you know, you think back to the, uh, the 1960s, 1970s, not only a lot of direct controls on, on, on trade, on visible trade, but also, you know, a pretty robust and restrictive system of exchange controls, of capital controls. So the, you know, the relaxation, the elimination of exchange controls in 1979 just sent out a message to the world, I think, of openness. And that meant that you know, those foreign investors who wanted to establish operations in the UK knew that they'd be able to take their profits back if they wanted to. Uh, and you know, Britain led the way on openness in that period. And I think something that had been understated beforehand, we did have this comparative advantage in many services. Now, it includes you know, business services, professional services, financial services, and that was quite important in this turnaround uh, post-1980. Suddenly, the UK becomes a good performer. And maybe you know, the fact, what happened to manufacturing was just that we were, you know, we'd, we'd kept you know, the, the sort of dream alive of having a large manufacturing sector when too much of it was uh, inefficient and, uh, and unproductive and not internationally uh, competitive. Uh, because, you, you know, you look at the, and again, this is from the LSE Growth Commission. It's a very good report if you haven't read it. Um, and it shows that, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, what happened in the 1980s was that we just swapped 
manufacturing for financial services. We become a financial services-based economy, and that, is, uh, and that is what happens. In fact, you know, financial services, which on here is financial intermediation, is a very small part of the, of the post 1979-80 uh, growth story. A whole lot of other things are. I mean, we even have you know, a minor miracle in terms of manufacturing productivity uh, over this period. But overall, it's a broad-based sort of improvement in GDP per capita in, uh, in productivity over this period you know, from 1980 leading up to the, uh, the financial crisis. So there is a renaissance there. It's a renaissance that begins in the early 80s, lasts through to, uh, uh, to the financial crisis, lasts you know, it survives different governments and, very, and some of the crises I'll, I'll talk about uh, in a moment. What's been the, the growth performance over this period? Now, the, as this shows, the, the long-run average for, uh, for UK economic growth is, is just a fraction over, um, over 2%. Um, the, the golden age for the global economy and for the UK economy, which is the period between 1950 and 1973, you do see much stronger growth over that period. So growth averages more than 3% a year in the 1950s and, uh, and nearly 3.5% a year in the, uh, in the 1960s. And for other countries, of course, some of those countries which were catching up, uh, it was even stronger over that period. Then you get the, uh, you know, the, the, the more difficult environment of the, certainly from, the, uh, from the, the first third of the 1970s is a, is a period of very rapid economic growth, over rapid economic growth. You know, the strongest single year for UK economic growth uh, was 1973 uh, when the UK economy grew by 7.3%, the, the famous barber boom, after which we get into all sorts of difficulty and the IMF rescue. But you see a progressive slowdown towards that long-run average over the, uh, over the period. And, you know, maybe it's quite interesting that, you know, over the, the past 20, 25 years, and if you project forward to the end of this decade, we seem to have settled back to some kind of long-run average of around about uh, 2% growth. So, so if you believe in, you know, it's, it's always, growth is always a story of sort of slowdowns and catch-ups. The, uh, you know, the 1950 to 1973 golden age was payback for the very slow growth of the interwar era, and maybe we're seeing, you know, maybe we've just settled back to, to something close to the, close to the long-run uh, average. Um, inflation and the Control of inflation has, uh, has been very important. You know, if you, if you go back, you know, when, when the lights were starting to go out on manufacturing and people started to talk about Britain as being the, the sick man of Europe, it was because we were very strike-prone, but also because we were very uh, inflation-prone. These are the uh, annual average figures for inflation. Of course, you know, if you take the monthly numbers, uh, there were times when it was, was much worse than this. So inflation peaked at a, a fraction under 27% in 1975, and then again at 22%, almost 22% in uh, 1980. Uh, if there was an inflation shock out there, whether it was uh, global oil prices or some other factor, you could bet that the UK would experience it worse than, than, uh, than most countries. Uh, the period since the, I mean, it's interesting, the period since uh, the, 19, the recession of the early 90s is one where, with one or two exceptions, inflation has not been a problem. So the period when the, the Bank of England has had an enhanced role, and in particular since, you know, independence in uh, 1997, has been one in which, in general, 
inflation has, uh, has remained under pretty good control. So, uh, you know, the first inflation target we had was in, uh, was in uh, 1992. And the inflation target, based on a slightly different measure of inflation than we've got at the moment, was that it should stay in a range of 1% to 4%. The reason we had an inflation target, I think, was, uh, and I'll talk about it in the, briefly in a moment, we'd, we'd dropped out of the ERM, uh, the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, in September 1992. There was a real thrashing around within governments and within the Bank of England for a, a policy alternative and that policy alternative was very much something to sort of, you know, get us through until perhaps we could rejoin the ERM. And, uh, you know, it was, it was quite difficult to think. You know, we tried everything over the years in terms of different types of policy. Uh, we tried, obviously, monetarism in the 1980s. We had incomes policies in the 1960s and 1970s, none of which have been spectacularly successful. Membership of the ERM was regarded as the sort of, you know, the, the, the permanent solution. You know, we would tie ourselves to the, you know, the low-inflation German Bundesbank. When we dropped out, there was a, you know, there was a real problem about what would replace it. And uh, it so happened that at the time, you know, in, a couple of years earlier, New Zealand had adopted an inflation target. There were two or three officials from the New Zealand Treasury on secondment at the UK Treasury, and uh, I think they just said, you know, quietly in one meeting, why don't you have an inflation target? And we had an inflation target without any expectation that it would be achieved over any decent interval of time. You know, so the in initial inflation target was it should remain in the range of 1% to 4%, and, uh, that, uh, and everybody thought... Well, if that lasts us for a year, we'd have done very well. And now, you know, sort of, you know, 23 years later, we've still got an inflation target. It's still credible. It's tighter than it was then because it's, you know, it's effectively the, the range is within uh, one point of the, uh, of the target, which is 2%. This has been, you know, an incredibly successful shift in terms of the UK. Now, many countries have had lower inflation uh, during this period, but it, the, to have it anchored in the way that it has been in the UK, I think, has been one of the great successes of, uh, of recent years. Bank independence, preceded by an enhanced role for the bank, has, has certainly been uh, very beneficial. The other thing I think has shown up from here, I've mentioned labour market flexibility a couple of times. The, the trade-off between uh, unemployment and inflation, the performance of the labour market, has been much better than we would have had any reason to expect in the past. Uh, you know, the, so when poor people talk about labour market flexibility, I think this is the, this is the proof of the pudding, if you like, that, uh, you know, that in, in inflate, uh, unemployment has not risen in, in most recent recessions as much as people would have feared, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's come down much more sharply. I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But you know, one example of that is that um, if you look on this chart and see what happened... In the, in the 80s, it took a long time, as you can see, bef before unemployment came down. It was stuck at around 3 million, getting on for you know, more than 10% of the workforce for a long time. And then, just as it starts to come down, we have another recession in 1990, and it goes up again very sharply, comes down during the 90s and the 2000s, and then we have the, uh, the global financial crisis. But the interesting thing about the, the relationship between growth and, uh, and unemployment is, is, I think, you know, and this is a progressive thing, you know, if you, if you, if you make your labour market more flexible, if you introduce supply-side reforms, uh, and this is, you know, part of the debate at the moment is what can you do about weak productivity growth, 
And people sometimes, you know, think you can, you can change these things very quickly. It takes a very long time. So, I, you know, I firmly believe that the, the supply-side reforms we saw in the 1980s only really proved themselves in the, the 1990s and the 2000s, and in particular in the, uh, in the global financial crisis. So one example of that is that in the recession of the uh, early 90s, we had a peak to trough fall in, uh, in GDP of 2.5%, 2.5%. But we had a fall in employment, a fall in employment of 6%. You know, big fall in employment uh, relative to the drop in GDP. And that wasn't, wasn't untypical. In the most recent recession, we had, you know, it was a mirror image. We had a fall in GDP of 6% from peak to trough, but we had a fall in employment of only 2.5%. Now, you imagine what, the, what it might have been like if the relationship between growth and unemployment in, uh, in 2008-9 had been the same as it was in the, in the early 90s. You know, a drop in GDP of 6% might have produced a 15 or 20% drop in employment. We would have had devastating levels of uh, unemployment. That hasn't happened. So this is, I think this is a story of you know, a, a more successful uh, supply side that has evolved over, over the years. Now, the UK is not uh, in any way problem-free. You know, one of the concerns that, uh, that we've, we've had for, for a very long time, you know, long after those, those manufacturing trade surpluses disappeared, the last one we had uh, was in 1982, since when they've got progressively larger, um, and, you know, it's not just the, 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 the decline of the manufacturing trade surplus. We had a brief period where North Sea Oil was compensated for the, uh, for the weakness elsewhere in terms of the current account. But overall, the UK is a country which has a current account deficit, a chronic current account deficit, particularly large at the moment, and one that where you require capital inflows to, uh, to offset that. Uh, and I'll talk in a moment about, uh, briefly about one of the, one of the factors which, uh, which lies behind that. It's also the case, you know, big debate at the moment about whether the, uh, the government uh, can get to a budget surplus and should be running a budget surplus. The, the norm for the UK uh, over, as you can see, many years has been for a, to have a budget deficit, to, for governments to borrow. And so you see over that, uh, over that period that public spending, total managed expenditure, tends to be larger uh, than uh, tax receipts, which is the, the yellow line on here. Governments tend to borrow. Sometimes that borrowing is very large. Most of the time it's, uh, it's quite modest. Uh, but surpluses, which is when uh, the expenditure is below the receipts, are, uh, are quite rare events. So the idea that uh, the, uh, the current Chancellor is talking about of having a budget surplus uh, as the normal course of things, as the usual thing to, to, to do, is, uh, is, 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 is very rare, very unusual, would, break, would mark a new uh, direction for, uh, for policy. Um, what's been the story on debt? Um, well, as you can see, you know, we've, we've got data on public sector debt going back a, a very long time, uh, you know, way back to just after the uh, Napoleonic Wars. And the story is, is, is in general, quite a, quite a simple one, which is that, uh, you know, debt goes up as a result of wars and comes down in peacetime. In peacetime, it may be, it even, you can even run uh, budget deficits in, uh, in peacetime, but the debt as a percentage of GDP will come down as long as your, your growth is strong enough. And if you look at this chart, you, you know, you could, you could, you could argue, you know, 
what is the fuss about that we've got, you know, public sector net debt of roughly 80% of GDP now? We've been much higher than that in the past. You know, after, in the Second World War, we got up to 250% of GDP. Why should we worry about, um, uh, about debt, uh, at, uh, or, you know, which is only a third of that as a percentage of GDP? I think the answer, I think it is a good question, and I hope that nobody was going to ask that question, I've spoiled it, but, you know, it's a good, it's a good question. I think the answer to it is, after wars, you've usually got a fairly easy mechanism uh, to bring debt down. You know, the peace brings with it, uh, you know, a natural reduction in military spending. It brings with it a prolonged peace dividend uh, by which you can bring bring down uh, debt as a percentage of GDP. When you have a peacetime crisis uh, of the sort that we've had with the global financial crisis, then there is no obvious mechanism that you can benefit from that will bring that down. It is not the case that the public sector net debt has gone up because that's the cost of rescuing the banks. In fact, that's not included in these these numbers. Uh, And that that, that is a side issue. But if you think about the future, and again, I'll talk about that in a uh, a little while, you know, there are no natural things which will bring debt down. You know, you're running into a period where, if anything, the pressures for greater public spending are higher rather than lower. So the mechanisms that allow you to bring debt down in a post-war period, uh, which are natural and quite powerful, as you can see, are not there when you've, you've, you, you're into a period of rising public sector debt as a result of a crisis. So that is why there is, you know, the, and I think this was, I don't know if it will, would survive... Um, you know, the emergence of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, but that is why there's been a sort of all-party position that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't let debt run away in, a, in, a, in, in peacetime. You should, you should have some mechanism in place for trying to control it and bring it, uh, bring it lower. Um, so what is the, you know, how do I sum up the UK performance over this, uh, over this period? I, I think there are, there are plenty of good things about, you know, when I think back, you know, obviously regret that, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the decline and the abrupt decline of manufacturing. But in most respects, you will look at this improvement in relative growth performance, and that has been, has been, has been particularly good since, uh, since around about 1980. Becoming no longer an inflation-prone uh, country, particularly since bank independence in 1997, but, you know, preceding that when the bank was given an enhanced role, I think it has been incredibly important for the UK. And I think, you know, that, that has been one of the great success stories. The industrial relations climate was terrible. It has improved, and that, was, that is part of the story of, uh, you know, attracting human investment, flexibility, labour market flexibility. The job market works better. And I think we are, you know, even for, for governments of both parties, in the 50s and 60s, there was a very corporatist approach. You know, the idea was in those days, as you will know, that you know, business, the trade unions, and government could, between them, you know, decide what was best. And there was almost no room in that era for, for new entrants, for entrepreneurs, and so on. There, you know, it was a very sort of sticky corporate structure, as well as uh, you know, as well as sort of trade unions, which, which, which in general looked after their own members rather than the, the wider population. So that has been replaced by something that's more entrepreneurial and, uh, and less corporatist. What about the, you know, the, the weaknesses? Well, we do have low productivity. You know, our product, uh, output per worker, output per hour is higher in the, uh, in the UK than, um, than in Japan, but uh, it is not higher than any other uh, G7 uh, countries. And that, so that has persisted, uh, and that is a persistent weakness. And, th- and that is due to 
Some of these underlying things, you know, skills, not enough infrastructure spending, not enough investment spending, which have never really been corrected. You know, the LSE Growth Commission uh, did a great job, you know, a year or so ago in identifying those. But it would be essentially, you know, a similar commission 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier would have identified the same weaknesses, the same problems for, uh, for the UK economy. And those have never really been corrected. The chronic current account deficit uh, I've mentioned, and also this sort of regional and sectoral imbalance that we are left with. You know, I, I, I did, uh, I wrote about the, you know, Britain's north-south divide uh, 30 years ago, and things are more pronounced now than they, they were then. And the, you know, the, the bias towards London and the southeast in terms of economic power, in terms of, uh, in terms of employment, in terms of, in terms of wealth, is more pronounced now than it was then. And, is, you know, and that, is, uh, that is something that we, sh- we should be concerned about. So, I mean, overall, I think the good over this period, and I think the economy has got better. Uh, I think it has become more flexible, more entrepreneurial, but we shouldn't pretend that the, uh, the, you know, the weaknesses have all gone away. So the performance has been, um, you know, it's not quite a curate's egg. I think it's slightly better than a curate's egg, but it's, uh, it's it, you know, there are some, some weaknesses still there, and those are the ones that, uh, that need addressing. What about some of the, uh, the people? Now, um, for those who are unfamiliar with these, these figures, um, I'll read them across from... Uh, from the, so the first one on the top left is uh, Dennis Healy. He was uh, Labour Chancellor 1974-79. Then we had Sir Geoffrey Howe, who was uh, Margaret Thatcher's first Chancellor 1979-83. to 83. Nigel Lawson, now Lord Lawson, 1983-89. to uh, 89. John Major, a very short stint as, um, uh, as uh, Chancellor. He, he was a person who, uh, who moved between the great offices of state in very... Uh, you know, in a very uh, short time span. He was Foreign Secretary, and then three months later he was Chancellor, and then a year later he was Prime Minister. So an extraordinary uh, period. Norman Lamont was his Chancellor from 1990 to 1993. The man pulling on the cheroot is Kenneth Clark, 1973 to... uh, uh, 1997. You will know Gordon Brown, um, 1997 to 2007, longest-serving modern Chancellor. Then we have Alistair Darling, 2007-2010, and George Osborne, the uh, the current incumbent. Uh, how do uh, how does one rate these? Now they, they, they you know, they've all had they've all made contribution. I mean, none of them are you know are you know poor, weak, or uh, you know, feeble figures. You know, to, to get to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, you, I think you have to be uh, a pretty strong personality. You have to be pretty talented. You have to be a good politician. You have to be tough. And, and all of them had uh, different degrees of toughness. I think in terms of, you know, the, the one that, you know, he's, he's, he still has some people who would defend his record, but, you know, Dennis Healy was around for the you know, the 1976 IMF crisis. Britain was instrumental in, uh, in setting up the IMF, Bretton Woods, and so on. Uh, but we were the first major country to have to be rescued by it. And quite a lot of that uh, is, you know, is, is at uh, Dennis Healy's door in the sense that uh, he, um, you know, he, expanded, he tried to expand the economy uh, after the first oil crisis. That was disastrous. Most, most other countries... Uh, de- decided not to do that, and the UK was uh, was very badly exposed in that period, the Goodbye Great Britain period. Um, there wasn't a lot either on the uh, you know you can you can assess chancellors 
by their macroeconomic record, but also by their micro or supply side record. There wasn't a lot that Dennis Healy did on the micro side that, uh, that really uh, uh, you know, uh, deserves to be, uh, to be remembered or to be praised. Very high taxation. You know, this was a period when we had an 83% top rate of tax, 98% if you in- included uh, unearned income. Uh, and it was a pretty disastrous period uh, for, the, for the economy. So I don't, I don't rate him particularly highly. Jeffrey Howe, um, interesting, because I think the two things that... Um, I mean, the, the, the one theme I would, would draw out of chancellors is that those who are a kind of steady hand, you know, they are they're sort of safe, reliable, maybe, you know, would be accused of being a bit dull, tend to be the most successful. And I, I would give Jeffrey Howe quite a lot of praise. He took over at a difficult time. Um, he was, uh, he had a, you know, obviously a very dominant and domineering Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, to work with. But not only did he leave, you know, after four years in the job, with the economy much improved in terms of how it was doing, it, you know, to, it, the initial, uh, what happened, initially after 19, 1979 was the economy went into recession, but then by the time he left it was recovering pretty well, but also the micro things he did, the supply side things he did, I think were very beneficial. So his first budget was one where he, he cut the top rate and basic rate of tax. So the top rate of tax came down to 60%. The basic rate came down to 30%. Paid for, you know, this was not a, you know, a kind of unfunded tax cut. It was paid for by uh, raising VAT. And that was a sort of you know, philosophical thing. You move from direct to indirect taxation. Direct taxation improves incentives. So reducing direct taxation was important and, uh, and, and, and did make a, a substantial difference. And also, as I mentioned earlier, abolishing exchange controls, a very bold thing to do for a, you know, a steady-as-she-goes uh, chancellor. So I give him a lot of credit. Nigel Lawson was probably the most brilliant chancellor on this, on this list in terms of tax reform. He had a very clear idea about what he wanted to do uh, on tax reform and particularly on uh, corporation tax, but also on other taxes. And the, the easiest way to, to sum up Nigel Lawson and taxes is get rid of reliefs, reduce rates. So, you know, reduce all the, all the stuff that clutters up the tax system and in return reduce the, the rates of income tax. And you've got a better tax system, a more incentive, one that encourages incentives. But unfortunately, he failed you know, rather badly on the, on the macro side. So having been the sort of high priest of, uh, of monetarism, great believer in monetary targets in the medium-term financial strategy, he became swayed after a couple of sterling, mini-sterling crises to the idea of exchange rate targeting, eventually to the idea of, uh, of ERM membership. And so the macro record in the end was, was, was pretty awful. You know, that, uh, we, he, he left with inflation back up again, inflation back up into double figures. And the one thing the Tories were supposed to have done in the 1980s was to have, uh, to have beaten inflation. So the macro record counts against him quite strongly. Uh, John Major wasn't really around for long enough. Um, his m- most important decision was taking us into the ERM. Uh, that didn't work out uh, very well, but obviously as Prime Minister he had to pick up the pieces. So you know, too, too short a time to tell, but you know, I don't think one of the most memorable uh, chancellorships. Norman Lamont was his chancellor um, and again had to, had to be in charge during a recession, during this difficult period of ERM membership when... You know, the problem with ERM membership, uh, I don't know to what extent people 
remember this, but we joined in 1990. It was one of our, the, you know, the many excursions into European monetary arrangements that we've had in the UK, which have been unsuccessful. And the problem was that we went into recession. The German economy was booming as a result of unification, and interest rates couldn't be reduced enough. To meet the needs of the UK economy, we were stuck with the, uh, you know, the, the, the level, you know, the, the minimum level of rates that we could, we could uh, get away with in the uh, ERM. And so this was perceived as a great straitjacket for the economy. And Norman Lamont, unfortunately, had to suffer that. But the one positive thing I would say about him was that he, you know, he was the, the chancellor who was there when the decision was taken to adopt an inflation target. Uh, and uh, so that is, that is a positive thing for him. Kenneth Clark, uh, you know, inherited uh, a growing economy from, uh, uh, from Norman Lamont. And in terms of the macroeconomic record, in terms of growth and inflation, is one of our mo most successful recent chancellors. But without much to, he didn't leave a lot uh, to be remembered for his, uh, his four years at the, uh, at the Treasury. Gordon Brown, I think, you know, when I, when I used to look at Gordon Brown's record when he, was, uh, when he was Chancellor, it was quite hard to imagine anybody who had done better in terms of the, you know, the combination of growth, low inflation, falling and quite low unemployment, and, it, you know, for quite a long time, the public finances being under pretty good control. Um, you know, and even the, the sort of micro things, which were, I think, you know, on balance, growth unfriendly. You know, the, some of the flexibility that Labour inherited in 1997 was undone under Gordon Brown. It, lo it, it, it looked very good. But I always said, you, you know, you can't really judge a chancellor until he's left office. And, of course, you know, Gordon Brown left office in 2007, uh, after which at least some of the problems that we've sub subsequently had must be uh, visited upon him and must be, must be blamed on him. So it's a tarnished record from some, someone who you know, really believed he was, the, uh, he was the best chancellor ever and had, had got everything covered. Certainly the, one of the most powerful chancellors ever. He, certainly, you know, he covered the, the whole of Whitehall during his period. Uh, but I would give, you know, if anything, and you know, Gordon Brown would hate this, I would give higher marks to uh, Alistair Darling. You know, another of those safe pair of hands chancellors took over in the, in the summer of 2007, just as the global financial crisis was starting. And I think, you know, was, was both brave, was, was, a, was a reassuring voice. You know, not everything that the, uh, the Treasury did during this period was, was correct. But to the extent that, uh, you know, he, in general, the decisions that were taken, and some of these are incredibly bold. I mean, when you're, when you're talking about providing hundreds of billions of liquidity or guarantees to the banking system, and you're the chancellor who takes those decisions, you really have no idea whether any of this is going to work or not, or whether in, you know, in 10 years' time you'll be blamed for bankrupting the country. So some of that was very, very, very bold. Like Geoffrey uh, Howe, he was somewhat overshadowed by a powerful uh, prime minister, in this case Gordon Brown. But I, Alistair Darling I would give uh, pretty good high marks to. George Osborne, I think we've yet to see what, what uh, you know, the full extent of what we'll, you know, he would, he would say uh, that, you know, his first term was constrained by coalition, maybe the second term will be different, but uh, I would stick to the, you know, it's, it's, it's unfair to judge a chancellor until they've uh, left office for at least a couple of years. Some good things, some bad things, maybe we can discuss that in question. So my two, uh, the two chancellors I would single out as I think have, uh, have, got, you know, have done well and with relatively few 
downsides and relatively few criticism would be uh, Jeffrey Howe and Alistair Darling. All the others have done some good things and some pretty terrible things. But it's been, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're an interesting bunch. I say we shouldn't diminish any of them, really, because they've all, they've all made a difference. Some of them have made a difference in a negative way, um, some of them slightly more positively. But, um, uh, and what about, um, you know, the, uh, the bank governors? The, again, Bank of England governors tend to last longer than chancellors. Uh, and the, the ones we've got here are uh, Lord Richardson, Gordon Richardson on the left there, Robin Lee Pemberton, uh, Lord Kingsdown, uh, and then Eddie George. There was a time, and those, two, those, two, those top two on the left reflect it, when there were so many sort of distinguished uh, people running banks or investment banks in the, uh, in the city who were, who were British that you, you know, you, that whenever the Bank of England governorship became available it automatically went to, to one of these uh, figures, one of the great and the good so Robin Lee Pemberton used to be used to run NatWest before he was recruited to be Bank of England governor then we've got Eddie George, then uh, Mervyn King who you'll be familiar with and then uh, Mark Carney and Again, it's quite difficult to, to, to judge, you know, because they, they, were, they, were, they were governors in different circumstances. I mean, Gordon Richardson, for example, um, fell out very badly with Margaret Thatcher, so, you know, that wasn't, a, wasn't an easy relationship. Um, Robin Lee Pemberton had a better relationship, but I, I, I'm not sure was a better governor. I think, you know, if I was asked to sort of pick the perfect Bank of England governor, um, it would be somebody who was a, uh, a sort of amalgam of... Eddie George and Mervyn King. So, you know, in terms of, you know, being a, in general, a very good economist and knowing the economic side of the job, then Mervyn King was the kind of uh, uh, governor that you would want, but was, was, was not at home when, uh, you know, the, the task was to rescue the, uh, the banking system. He didn't have a good relationship with the, uh, the banks. And he was not particularly interested in the, the sort of financial stability aspect of the governor's job. Um, whereas Eddie George, that was his natural, uh, you know, that was his natural territory. He, you know, he was m- much more at home with that uh, than with the, uh, all, this, all this macroeconomic stuff. So if you could, uh, if you could have a clone, you know, some way of, uh, of putting together um, Eddie George and Mervyn King, you'd have an ideal Bank of England governor. Whether Mark Carney is that, uh, is that amalgam, uh, I don't know. He has some aspects, some attributes of that. But, uh, you know, it's, I don't think we've seen the, the perfect bank governor. I say too early to judge uh, Carney because he hasn't uh, been in the job. seems as though he's been in the job a long time, but it's only a couple of years. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, it's been a difficult role. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, and what it shows is, and particularly now that you've got the Bank of England doing a, a you know, much, much wider range of stuff, it's, you know, the, the managing the economy, monetary policy, but also the whole financial stability uh, uh, stuff. I, I mean, I, I happen to think that the bank was very lucky to have preserved its reputation, not because it, of anything it did. It was a bit slow to respond to the, uh, to the financial crisis, and, and Mervyn King was slow to respond to it. But it was fortunate uh, that you know, one, of the, one of the black marks against Gordon Brown was, you know, was is always said to be taking financial and banking supervision away from the Bank of England and setting up the Financial Services Authority. I mean, I'm convinced that had it remained within the Bank of England, uh, we'd still have had, you know, as bad and a, a very similar crisis as we had uh, in, in 2007-8. Uh, it's just that the blame would have been in a different direction. So I think the, the bank was quite fortunate 
not to be around, because I don't think many, all that many questions were being asked, as Cecil may disagree, uh, within the Bank of England about all this, the build-up in, particularly in financial sector debt over that, over that period. What about the crises? Uh, there are four I would mention, I, and I don't want to go into these in, in, uh, in great detail, uh, apart from just a little bit the last one. So, you know, 90, the, the, but the, the first three on there, and these are, you know, you could, you could point to others as well, but the first three on there are all essentially... British crises and in some ways, you know, self-inflicted crises. So 1967, devaluation, you know, regarded as a sort of, you know, economically necessary but a great blow to, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to British pride and not least a, a blow to, you know, the, a government which had for three years said it wouldn't devalue and for a chancellor, uh, James Callaghan, who, uh, you know, felt honour bound to resign on devaluation because he'd given so many assurances that it wouldn't happen. Uh, and that was a, a particularly British thing and, and, and involved the first you know, episode of IMF intervention in the UK economy, the first serious episode. Then we had the 1976 IMF crisis, which was you know, a national humiliation, as I said earlier, brought about, I think, by misdirected policy after the, uh, after the oil crisis, but maybe a build-up of all those forces that have been going for a long time. Black Wednesday in September 1992. Black Wednesday was when we dropped out of the ERM involuntarily. Uh, and the mistake there was, you know, to join it, as some people said at the time, you know, wrong rate, wrong time, wrong reason. Uh, wrong reason was because the, it was seen in 1990 that joining the ERM was a great way of getting UK interest rates, which at the time were very high, 15%, down to more reasonable levels. You should, you know, in joining any exchange rate uh, arrangement, you should have you should be thinking rather longer term than that. So that was a, a disaster. But, and then, we, of course, we had the global financial crisis and the, uh, and the Great Recession. I'll just uh, talk a little bit about that uh, because it's most, uh, most recent. Uh, we're at an interesting point now. We're, I mean, we're eight years after the, the start of the global financial crisis. It began in the summer of 2007, or that's at least when we became uh, uh, most uh, aware of it. Uh, and, of course, it reached its worst phase in the... Uh, uh, in the autumn of 2008 when the banks started uh, collapsing. Um, and, we, you know, it has taken time to get over it. We, you know, we had, we had figures today which showed that, uh, you know, GDP per capita has just risen above pre-crisis levels, has only just risen above pre-crisis levels, which is longer than it uh, normally takes. The twin hangovers, of course, we've had, uh, hence the pills, uh, the, uh, you know, the banking hangover and the, uh, the fiscal hangover. Banking hangover, it takes a long time to, for, to get the banks recapitalized and back into any kind of shape to start lending again. And the fiscal hangover, you know, every country went into large deficit. The UK went into spectacularly large deficit in, as a result of the, uh, the crisis, 11% of GDP. So, you know, uh, curing that hangover has proved, uh, proved a, a challenge as well. Uh, how has Britain done over that period? Well, I think one of the things that I would say, and, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit of praise for, uh, for policymakers, and perhaps not just in the UK, but, you know, you see examples, not that many, but, you know, you, you, you look at what's been happening in Greece recently, where you see the extent of the pain, the uncertainty, the failure of the banking system, you know, people being rationed, how much they can get out. All that could have happened in any economy, including the UK economy, in 2008. I mean, we, you know, we did come surprisingly close to that sort of financial breakdown that could have led to civil breakdown and so on. 
As it turned out, and, you know, and, and policymakers, I don't think, would ever claim this for themselves, but in particular, a very rapid response in terms of getting interest rates down very sharply. Most of these previous episodes where they're UK-only crises have seemed much worse and have affected people much worse in, in, in terms of unemployment. Labour market flexibility has helped on the unemployment side. But the shock that's given us you know, large-scale unemployment and redundancies, the shock that's given us you know, huge numbers of home repossessions and all those things, have in general been because interest rates were held too high for too long once a crisis has hit. Now, this time, I think policymakers were much faster on their feet in terms of getting interest rates down, in, in terms of getting a bit of a, uh, a stimulus into the economy, but most particularly by ensuring that the system didn't collapse. So, you know, all that provision of liquidity, all that, you know, ensuring that by hook or by crook, you are going to keep the confidence of the depositing public, people who had bank deposits, people who had bank accounts, that their money was, was still safe. I mean, the, the question I used to get asked most frequently in the crisis, and these are by colleagues on the Sunday Times, you know, where, is, where will my money be safe? And I always used to say, well, you know, you should look at these, uh, these, uh, the bank deposit guarantee scheme. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, at the start of the financial crisis, you know, you, you were guaranteed if you had up to 30,000 in an account with a single bank, it was guaranteed. And subsequently, that's gone up and has recently gone down a little bit uh, as well. But, I mean, I, I, I used to say that in the knowledge that if, if a big bank failed, so would the deposit guarantee scheme. You know, a banking system is all about confidence. You know, if you, uh, and if people lose confidence, if, if, there is a, if there is a run on the bank, and of course, in, in September 2007, we saw a run on Northern Rock, first run on a British bank since the 1860s. Then you, if confidence goes, then your financial system goes, and it's very difficult to keep hold of that. So I think the fact that, you know, the global financial crisis, and in particular the British version of it, was a much bigger crisis, a much bigger recession, uh, and so on, uh, than any of those UK-only crises. But most of the public would have felt the effects were milder than during those previous crises. In those previous crises, people were hit by sustained high interest rates, as I say, by much bigger rises in unemployment, uh, you know, losing their homes and losing their businesses, all those things. All that has been remarkably well contained in, uh, in, uh, in recent years. And I think that, you know, that is a, a success for, you know, the combined forces of, uh, of uh, you know, the authorities, policymakers and so on. Um, what's happened to the economy? Well, I said we, this didn't, doesn't include today's figures, but we've just got back to... Um, to pre-crisis levels in terms of GDP per head. I think the, 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 the eight years on from the crisis is an interesting moment because if you, you, know, if you read some of, the, some of the good stuff that's been written about you know, financial crises through history, particularly Reinhardt and Rogoff, they would say that it's almost certain that in a, a, after a financial crisis you're going to have a period of weak growth. So, you know, we debate about whether our weak growth was due to austerity, whether it was due to other factors, a whole series of things you can throw in there. But I think the, the naivety was perhaps, you know, expecting growth to bounce back very quickly after a financial crisis on the scale that we, uh, that we had. So, you know, a period of weaker growth was, was inevitable. And now I think, you know, and they said, you know, in, in, that, in, in their books, this time is different, by which time they meant it's no different. Um, you know, these things fade over time and growth gets back to some kind of norm. And that has been exactly 
you know, the UK experience on that has been almost textbook, that we had a, an initial period where people talked about stagnation, flatlining, this being the permanent condition, and then as the effects of the crisis ease, you get into, uh, into stronger growth. Um, inflation, as I say, the, the, you know, the, the overall the period since the early 90s has been a period of enormous success for, um, uh, for containing and controlling inflation. But relatively, you know, the, the surprise was that we had quite high inflation by recent standards after the crisis. So there are two peaks on there you can see. One was in the, uh, in the summer of 2008 when the oil price went up very sharply and inflation went above 5%. The more surprising one was to have 5% inflation again after the worst recession in the post-war period. Recessions normally kill inflation. That's what they're there for. This time it didn't happen and produced a, a, you know, a big squeeze on, uh, on, on real incomes. But now we've got the opposite effect. You know, inflation is, is not there at all and will probably be quite weak for some time, you know, benefiting, uh, helping that, uh, that period of, uh, of recovery along. Uh, the job market has got stronger. So this has been, again, this has been a... A surprising story. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, that unemployment went up by much less than you would expect in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the recession, uh, you know, 2.5% two, two fall in, in employment against the 6% fall in GDP. And you might have expected the, the corollary of that was that you would then have a period of weak employment growth once you were recovering, that if uh, employers had hoarded during the recession, they wouldn't recruit during the upturn. In fact, we've seen very strong recruitment during this period. So the, you know, the, the, uh, the employment rate is, uh, is pretty close to, uh, to record levels at the moment. So again, you know, a lot of that has to do with, uh, with flexibility, I think. Um, however, you know, part of that flexibility is this, um, you know, this unusual weakness of, uh, of productivity. So the, the current recovery, it's not quite up to date, this, this chart, but it's not far away is the, the black line at the bottom. Virtually no improvement in productivity over the past uh, few years, as you will know. And that's, you know, this then becomes an outlier in comparison with, uh, with all previous recoveries. Now, there are special factors in there. You know, the North Sea, oil, North sea sector is one. You know, North Sea oil output has virtually halved in recent years, but, you, you know, the number of people employed there has not. Financial services is another, that, you know, financial services sector was generating uh, productivity growth apparently a 4% a year pre-crisis. It's been minus 3% a year since then. So there are special factors, but this is the, uh, you know, productivity weakness. And, uh, you know, one would, be, would tend to think that this, this uh, you know, cannot and should not last, that you can't have a prolonged period of, uh, of no productivity growth or else you don't have much uh, uh, recovery in, uh, in prosperity. Uh, budget deficit, you know, the, it's, there is still a, an issue there. I often think what, you know, what George Osborne will be doing now if, uh, you know, if the deficit had come down in line with those 2010 plans, it is somewhat larger. It should, it was, it's still around 5%. It should have been 2% by now. Um, so there is still an issue there. And there is, as mentioned earlier, this weakness or this potential vulnerability in terms of the uh, current account deficit. And I suppose the, the only thing I would mention on this, it's, it's, it's partly the traditional or the, the modern Achilles heel of the UK economy, which is the trade deficit, but it is also partly the, uh, and unusually, this deficit we've got on investment income. You know, in general, you know, we've been good at um, 
generating more income on our investments overseas than foreigners have in the UK. That has turned around over the past two or three years, giving these very large deficits. One would hope it would, uh, it would turn back. Let me just say something briefly about the future, which is my fourth theme. Um, there are, of course, many challenges for, uh, for the UK. Every advanced economy has an ageing population. Uh, the challenge of meeting public expectations... Uh, through, through public spending, you know, at a time when you've got demographic pressures, you've still got a deficit to deal with. Um, and, I, you know, if you, if you, one of the legacies of, I think, you know, the New Labour era was that if you increase public spending very dramatically over a sustained period, and 2000-2010 was the longest sustained period of very strong public spending growth we've seen, you know, 4% a year growth in public spending in real terms, uh, you know, which is well above uh, the economy's productive potential. Um, uh, but, you know, people come to expect more, and they, you know, when you take public services, it's, you know, any minister would say it's very easy to spend, it's much harder to cut because people have expectations. A competitive advantage for the UK, can we, you know, we've, we've apparently got a competitive advantage in, you know, in many sectors or, or, or quite a few sectors, particularly those professional business and financial services, can we maintain that? What about rebalancing and what about our relationship with the, um, with the EU? Um, I think short-term recovery is, is, is okay. I mean, it's, it, it seems to be reasonably well established. This is one of the uh, Bank of England's famous uh, fan charts, which Sushil will be familiar with. I, I always say about these fan charts that... Uh, sorry? Five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. I've, I've almost finished, yeah. Uh, the, the, um, these fan charts, are, it's a great way to present uh, forecasts because you can never be entirely wrong. Uh, but uh, you, um, uh, but the, the bold bit in the middle is where the bank expects to be. And I think that is, is reasonable. Inflation... But the bank has had a record recently of um, being wrong on inflation. So it may be, you know, we, and we see a lot of weakness of commodity prices at the moment, it may be that it's wrong, you know, in, in terms of predicting a, a return to the 2% target. But that, I think it's reasonable to expect some increase uh, in inflation. But also, and, you know, one of the big challenges, and I suppose one of the tests of what has been happening in recent years will be when interest rates begin to normalise. So we've been stuck at 0.5% bank rate since March 2009. The, this is the, obviously the lowest interest rate in the Bank of England's history. The uh, Bank of England's been in existence for 321 years. But it's also turning into one of the longest periods of unchanged rates. You have to go back to the period that straddled the Second World War for a period where rates have been unchanged for so, for so long. So I think it will be an interesting test when rates begin to rise and the bank is signaling, you know, starting to signal that they will start to rise uh, maybe in the next uh, you know, six months or so. Um, the, the, you know, how does the economy adjust to that? You know, is it the case that we've, you know, recovery has all been based on zero interest rates and not just recovery here but recovery in other advanced countries and it all starts to fall apart when, uh, when interest rates start to normalise? I don't think that will happen, you know, I, I, but, uh, but it, it, it is one reason why the bank has been, you know, so nervous about moving away from these exceptionally uh, low rates. I think looking slightly longer term, I mean, it does seem that the UK will become the biggest economy in, uh, in Europe over the course of the next uh, few decades. And 
Quite a lot of that is to do with, uh, with population. So we have quite rapid population growth in, uh, in the UK. Uh, France has also got uh, quite rapid population growth. Uh, Germany has got, is, is, is heading for very rapid population decline, as is Italy. So, uh, you know, largely a result of that, by the middle of the century, the UK should become uh, a larger economy than Germany. Uh, whether it's larger in per capita terms is, is, uh, is I think, another question. But it may be that you know, things have moved on uh, elsewhere by then, and it's, it's all to do with how you do in emerging markets. And just to finish on one thing, uh, and uh, is just on the, this question about whether, whether we will stay in the EU. You know, as, 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 as the prospective largest economy in Europe, will we stay in the EU? This is what's happening at the moment. The renegotiation has started. Um, what we see in terms of... Um, you know, public opinion on, uh, on the UK and the EU is that it does move around, you know, a great deal. So, you know, at the moment, we've got a majority, which is the blue line, in favour of remaining in, um, uh, but that's not always been the case. You only have to go back two or three years, and there was quite a strong majority uh, in the polls, you know, and, you know, we have to take the polls maybe with a pinch of salt, uh, for staying out. So what, what's all that about? I mean, I think one of the factors that will drive public opinion on the, when it comes to the referendum is the state of the Eurozone economy. So if people see that the Eurozone is in trouble, they don't really want to be part of it, people in Britain, and there is a sort of Eurosceptic bias, uh, and people may vote to leave. The other, one, the other thing is how people feel about the, their own personal situation. So at the moment, as you can see, consumer confidence is very high. A couple of years ago, it was pretty low. When people are feeling miserable, unconfident, uh, they will be inclined to, base it, you know, to, to blame some of that on the EU and the EU, Eurozone crisis and all that, and will, would, would be more likely to vote to, to leave. Um, my judgment is that when it comes to it, and I think the Scottish referendum was an interesting one, in that, that we've probably only got a, a hard core of you know, maybe 20-25% of people who would vote in any circumstances to leave the EU. Most people, I think, will prefer the security blanket of belonging to the EU. So I think they will be risk-averse, and if we, you know, when we have the referendum, I think we will, uh, we will vote to, uh, uh, to remain in. So that is my uh, expectation on that. And just to finish... Um, I, I mentioned that uh, I, you know, I've been following the economy for, for a very long time. I'm a great believer in informal economic indicators. And, um, and this is my own informal economic indicator, which is the, uh, uh, which is the skip index. And, uh, it's, and I, I've been doing this for years, and I've you know, bored readers of the Sunday Times with it for, you know, for, for too long. But uh, it's based on the number of builder skips in my street. And um, when there are none at all, we're in recession. Uh, when there are two, the economy is growing in line with what uh, we would call trend growth, and when there are four, it's an unsustainable boom. And uh, I can tell you for, you know, for reassurance that uh, at the moment there are three skips in the street, so, uh, so we're okay. Right. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, David. Uh, now, I want to open it up to questions. Now, I want to emphasize that we want questions, not a lecture. Uh, and also, if you could identify yourself, name and affiliation, 
and wait for the microphone. So who's going to ask the first question over there? Thank you. Nikolai Goshkov, Sputnik News. Uh, you uh, said that uh, when there's a run on the banks, uh, the financial system may become um, unsustainable and any guarantees, financial guarantees to uh, the investors or the people keeping their money in the banks would evaporate. Now, if you look at uh, national, savings and national savings and investments, uh, huge amounts of money are kept there. Uh, but it's guaranteed by the Treasury, is it not? So can you uh, foresee a situation where something, turn, something turns up which may make uh, the Treasury actually go back on its promise of uh, uh, you know, keeping those, those money, th that money safe? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that would be the case. So if, uh, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, national savings and, uh, and obviously you know, government bonds, gilts, were seen as, 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 as safe havens during the, uh, during the crisis precisely for that reason. And, uh, and I, I think that, that, is, that is the appropriate way to, um, uh, to see it. I mean, what was uncertain for a while, and it was a good job it became quickly quite certain, was the extent to which similar guarantees would apply to the private sector. So the extent to which the government would stand behind um, the, uh, the banks, even uh, if, as you will remember, during the crisis, they weren't necessarily British banks. So, you know, one of the things that the Treasury did was to say that nobody with uh, deposits in the Icelandic banks in the UK would, would lose money, that those would be guaranteed, and there's still a dispute about that. But also, I think, I think there, was, there was a period, and it was quite a brief period of uncertainty about how to... Um, uh, the extent to which, um, you know, as I say, northern rock deposits would be guaranteed and, and so on. But I think that was quite quickly and sensibly resolved. Um, in the end, you know, I, I, you know, governments probably can guarantee uh, national savings instruments of the sort you describe, uh, even if it means resorting to printing money to do so. You know, so, I th so, I, so, I think, so I think there was always a distinction. I think we'll take a question over here. Your microphone's coming up. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. My name's Hugh Edwards. By the way, your, your um, pictures of the ch chancellors, quite remarkably, they're all still alive today, including Dennis Healy at the age of 98. Um, Gordon Brown, was he such a... He kept us out of the Euro. Can you... Tony Blair wanted to jump in feet first. Can you imagine what life would be like today if we were still in Europe, if we were in Europe? Um, is the UK economy vulnerable to external shocks? One I've got in the back of my mind is China. Is the Chinese banking system as vulnerable as the US and UK's was in 2008? Is there a lot of rubbish in there? And, you know, it, you know, I don't have to tell you what would happen if there was a, some sort of collapse in China. Yeah. And could we find interest rates going up again? Nigel Lawson's, when he was chancellor, raised interest rates from 6 to 16% in, in six months, uh, which was a, you know, a disaster for 
business and house prices. Okay, I think I All counted right. more than three questions. Yeah. There. Okay. Um, no, thank, thank you. Uh, I mean, on the uh, on the first point, um, no, you're, you're you're quite right. We we uh, uh, we benefited from um, <clears throat> staying out of the uh, out of the euro, and Gordon Brown should be given some credit for that. Although it's not quite as straightforward as as people sometimes think, because um, you'll remember there were there were two decisions on whether to join the euro. One was, the, um, was in the, when just before it, was, it came into being in January 1999. So was, there was a 1998 decision. And, and then there was the two, 2003 decision, the five economic tests and so on. At the time of the 1998 decision, it was considered that, the, that um, Gordon Brown had been snubbed by Tony Blair because he decided to stay out of the euro. At that time, Gordon Brown was seen as the, the enthusiast for membership. Tony Blair wanted to prove that a Labour government could manage the economy unaided for at least a parliamentary term before considering. So, they, you know, so part of it, and I think it's important to say this, was born out of you know, whatever Tony Blair thought. Gordon Brown was almost obliged to take the opposite position. You know? so, you know, so some of it was, uh, was high-minded. High some of it was pure political rivalry. But I agree with you entirely. It was a good job we didn't, uh, we didn't join. On China, um, I don't see the... Uh, I mean, of course, there are worries uh, you know, about the Chinese stock market and about the Chinese <laughs> banking system. And there always have been. You know, this, is, this goes back a long time, non-performing loans in China and so on. I think that um, uh, you know, the parallels with, with, between China and the US uh, you know, in 2007 are, are quite misplaced. I mean, I think the authorities, uh, for a start, have got far better control. Not perfect control, but far better control over the Chinese banking system. Um, I don't think it's going to, to, uh, to fold and fail. And if it did, you know, the Chinese authorities have got a lot of... Um, a lot of firepower there. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not as concerned as you are about that. On interest rates, um, yes, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the minor miracles of recent years has been that um, interest rates have been set in a, I'm sure Social will say it's not always a leisurely way, but in a calm, considered way by nine people gathering, <coughs> gathering once a month in a room in the Bank of England and deciding whether to raise or lower rates by a quarter of a point. You know, and I grew up in a period where, as you say, I don't think it was 6 to 16, but it was certainly 7 to 13 you know, in, a, in a very few, few months. And interest rates, I mean, I, you know, when, I, when I was working on the Times, as opposed to the Sunday Times, one of my earliest months there, we started with interest rates at 9.5%. We ended the month with them at 14%. You know, so they could move around very rapidly. And it, it, it's fascinating and interesting that we seem to have moved away from that, those forced interest rate changes, which are always brought about, or typically brought about, by sterling you know, plummeting on the exchanges, the authorities feeling obliged, or the Chancellor feeling obliged to respond to it. Um, and long may that continue. I mean, you know, it, it could be that it changes, but you know, at the moment... You know, we are in a world where when the Bank of England says it will slowly nudge rates up to half their pre-crisis level, uh, so, you know, two and a half will become the new norm, we tend to believe them. We don't tend to think, uh, you know, it's not going to happen like that. They're suddenly going to go up to 10% or something. We seem to be in a different world. If we weren't, you know, I'd be a lot more worried about, uh, about the, the um, vulnerability of the UK economy to a change in the interest rate environment. Thank you, David. We'll take a question up there. 
thank you very much, um, Ewan Grant, um, business risk consultant. Um, quick question um, based on your comments about the challenges of demographics, uh, public expectations, and the deficit. Um, where do you see um, spending on pensions going? Do you expect significant acceleration of the um, state pension age? And I, I presume we, we would be likely to see, based on past recent precedent, um, really pretty dramatic accelerations Yep. in those ages and the dates at which they're introduced. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I certainly think we will, we will see... I mean, just, just to give a, an idea of the, um, the, you know, the broad numbers involved, um, you know, at the moment, uh, public spending is uh, around about 40% of GDP. Um, it looks, you know, over time that it's, it's quite difficult to get tax receipts uh, above sort of 36, 37% of GDP, you know, through, through periods of very high tax rates and through periods of lower tax rates. So even in the 1970s, tax receipts and percentage of GDP weren't, you know, uh, particularly high. They weren't higher than they are now, even though rates were higher. So, so when you're talking about, you know, and, and demographics, you know, if you, you take the OBR projections, will add between 3 and 4 percentage points to public spending. So, so the first task is to if you want to, to get the, you know, get, eliminate the budget deficit, is to get down to 36 37% of GDP. And then the next task is to, uh, is to try and keep it there during a period where demographic pressures are adding 3 or 4% of GDP to spending. And part of that will be to, uh, I have no doubt, will be to accelerate the, uh, the state pension age. Um, I mean, that's already moved quite a lot. Uh, and I think it will, it will move more. And I think the... The climate, if, and if you, if you like, I mean, people are already sort of voting with their feet on that. You know, you see, you know, a, quite a sharp increase in employment among the over 65s has been one of the characteristics of the last uh, three or four years. I think I'm, I'm sure we'll see uh, that trend continuing, and, and I think policy will, will go in, in, uh, in tune with that. So, so I think you're, yeah, I would agree with you. We have a question over there first. Uh, David Smeaton, I head the Office of uh, Property Consultants, Collies International in Birmingham. Uh, the devolution of powers to the regions, do you see that as an economic necessity to the continued success of the UK? Um, I think it's, I mean, it's a new way of looking at an old problem. I mean, the, um, and the old problem being regional disparities. And in, so... Essentially, when we had very active regional policy before, it was organised from the centre and you had systems of grants, uh, development areas. Uh, and in some cases, you know, so you know, essentially the two, the two aims of regional policy were either to move work to the workers or work to where the people were or to have systems of you know, encouraging people to move from the... Uh, uh, from areas of high unemployment to where, where the jobs were. Uh, interestingly, the, you know, the West Midlands where I um, grew up was 
you know, for, for the time when I was growing up, was regarded as a, one of the congested areas from which, uh, you know, development should be discouraged. And within the space of that uh, terrible decade for manufacturing, became one of the most assisted areas. So these, you know, these things change. I think regional de- devolution is interesting. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, and the, uh, what a, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously known as the, uh, the, the northern powerhouse. I, I think it really is the Manchester experiment that we're seeing there. I mean, you, you know, the, uh, and what I, I don't know is whether Manchester is, is unique in the sense that you've got different local authorities prepared to work together I don't know whether it can be replicated, you'll know better than I do, in Birmingham and the wider West Midlands and so on, or in Yorkshire, in the southwest, which is more geographically dispersed and, and, and all those things. So I don't know whether we're, we're basing a kind of new regional policy, a new form of devolution on just one experiment, which, you know, which, which may be unique. But, I, you know, I hope it succeeds. The one thing I do think, it, uh, you know, it does is slightly complicates economic policy. Uh, you know, the more devolution you give, then the, difficult, the more difficult I think it makes in the long term the job of Chancellor, because particularly when you give, if you give regions or you give areas fundraising powers, you know, power, you know the ability to raise money on the markets and so on, which, are, uh, which is ultimately guaranteed by government. So that could be a, a complication uh, that future chancellors could, could face. But uh, I think it is a, it's a fascinating experiment. And as I say, it's, it's, it comes after a period where you know, regional policy has, has really uh, lain quite dormant. So it's, it's, it, and it's interest, it was very interesting to see that coming from a Conservative chancellor as well. So, uh, so yeah, but it, it is, it's, um, I, I, I'm optimistic, but I, with the caveat that I don't know how unique Manchester is. And, uh, Question over there. My name is Raj Bansali. I'm a visiting professor at Imperial College in Statistics. Uh, my, uh, a feature of my recent times has been uh, the rapid growth of income endured by the top half percent and relative decline of the bottom 90%. What do you attribute it to? Could it be the labor market reforms you alluded to? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, that, because I think if it was, if it was due to... I mean, there, there, there is no doubt that you, you are correct. So that, you know, I think all the meaningful um, debate about inequality is about the top 0.1% or the top 0.5%. If you look at, uh, you know, for example, 90-10 ratios and, and, and those kind of measures of inequality, which you might have expected would would widen in a period of reduced union power. They've, they've been remarkably stable in the UK, certainly over the past 25 years or so. So, um, so what is it about the, those people at the very top? Is it because it's easier for them to uh, not pay any tax at all, or is it just, is it, you know, is it just as some would argue... Um, you know, one of the arguments about reducing uh, the higher rates of income tax was that would, um, you know, that would reduce the need for excessive salaries for CEOs and so on because they were getting more of a, uh, you know, their, their take-home pay was being boosted by lower taxes. Um, and people like Thomas Piketty would argue that the opposite has happened, that you know, once you had lower rates of, of uh, income tax at the top, then that gave more of an incentive to, uh, because there was no need to disguise it anymore. You didn't have to conceal it in all sorts of 
perks and other benefits. So that's where, where you get it. But, of course, you know, the problem of the, those at the very top is not confined to people who, um, who earn. It's, you know, it's people who, who generate income in other ways. I don't think it is a story... I don't think it is a, um, you know, a story of, of um, labour market flexibility particularly where the interventions that we've seen in recent years, you know, in the labour market, such as the minimum wage, and now we're going to have the national living wage, you know, those have tended to, uh, you know, particularly in recent years, during this period when we've had very weak real wages, those have tended to bump up the the incomes of people at the the bottom, uh, or also people on the minimum wage, not always people at the bottom in households. So I think it's complex, I, but I, I, you know, the fact that it's not just in the UK um, suggests to me it's not, it's, not a, it's not mainly a consequence of labour market flexibility. I think it's, it's a consequence of footloose individuals who can, can base their, themselves anywhere and by and large, can play tax authorities off against one another. You know, I think, it, I, think, I, think, I think that is where the story of high income inequality mainly resides. There's a question upstairs. Thank you. Um, Peter Danzig, retired. Uh, I have two short questions to you. First of all, you mentioned or you highlighted the labor market flexibility as a good and the weakness in skill as a bad or, or, or disadvantage for the UK economy. Don't you think there's a relationship between the labor market flexibility and the lack of skill and hence the lack of productivity increase in the UK? Uh, because obviously we create a low, low wage economy. And secondly, uh, you highlighted the current account deficit. Do you think that is sustainable for uh, on medium term? And if not, what will be the implication on the, uh, on the exchange rate and hence the inflation going Sorry, forward? Your second question was about the... The current account deficit. deficit yeah. Thank I, you. I think on the, on the first point, I mean, there is an argument to be, uh, to be put that um, when we had a system of, um, uh, you know, apprenticeships, uh, you know, apprenticeships in the UK were in many ways good, but were also something of a restrictive practice. You know, they were, they were a way of, you know, often used by unions to enforce prolonged periods of, of training, you know, beyond, sometimes beyond what was, uh, what was necessary. The fact that, you know, productivity growth was, um, was okay, if not spectacular, pre-crisis, and has been very weak since, would suggest that this is not just a sudden loss of skills. You know, it is, not, it is not the fact that we have suddenly become a low-skilled, low-productivity economy. I think there are other factors at play there. But um, does the, does the labour market offer enough incentives for employers to train? Um, I think it is... I, th- I think there is, a, there is a good question there, and I, I... One of the things I don't know is what would offer a better... Uh, incentive to train. You know, it, it is it, the, the the apprenticeship system was was okay, but it wasn't as good as Germany's apprenticeship system, uh, and so on. We had we had a, a you know something of a shadow of of, of that system. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure, but I, I mean certainly, you know, if you can get rid of the the free rider problem in the labour market, which is that you know 
employers don't have an incentive to train if, if the moment they've trained somebody up, they're going to be recruited by somebody else. You can do that partly by what they, you know, this government is trying to do, maybe not enough of that, which is to offer incentives through the tax system for apprenticeships, so there is, there, it is worth training anyway. Uh, that might be a way. But, uh, but you know, over the years, you know, right from the time when we were a much more corporatist economy, you know, learned reports have been prepared on the UK skills gap, and various things have been tried, including government-sponsored training schemes to replace those that the private sector didn't do, and none of them have been terribly successful. So, so I, th- I think there is a, there is a challenge there still. Um, on the current account, I mean, in the end, if, you know, it's a bit like I was talking about the banking system. If, if you know, if you need the capital inflows to fund the current account deficit, the current account deficit doesn't come down. If we had five years of current account deficit of 6% of GDP, I'd be quite worried about sterling. I mean, I'm assuming that some of the factors that have given us a very large current account deficit at the moment will diminish over time, but, uh, and I, I hope they do. Otherwise, as I say, you'd be, you'd be concerned about uh, sterling. Question here. Uh, Charlie Oliver, uh, for affiliation, I'll go with my blog, Me, Myself, and Why. Um, so I noticed in the bad parts about the UK, you said this disparity between regions and north-south divide, and I'm from Edinburgh, and I moved down three years ago for work, to work in London. And the majority of my peers um, have done the same, and that's always been the case to an extent with Scottish people, but I, th- I feel like it's more magnified now. Um, so my question is, how bad is it, um, and what really should be done about it? How can we sort of sort it out? Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, what, you know, one of the things that obviously is more developed in the case of Scotland than it is <coughs> for the English regions is, uh, is devolution. And, uh, you know, obviously devolution has had an additional spurt since the, um, since the referendum. I mean, if you, if you look at most measures, you know, GDP per head, GVA per head, and uh, unemployment, um, disposable incomes... Scotland does better than any uh, English region outside London and the South East. So, you know, Scotland has, has, has done relatively well. I mean, and it may be that some of those, you know, some of the reasons unemployment is, is quite low is because people like you uh, come down to, to, uh, to London and the South East to, to work. I mean, the, I think there is, there is you know, I, I was firmly against... Um, Scottish independence, mainly because I thought it was a very um, dis- dishonest offer that the uh, Scottish nationalists were make, making to the Scottish people. I mean, I, you know, essentially, um, you know, just as um, Syriza in Greece said, you know, vote no in the referendum and the banks will be open in two days' time, and they weren't. I think in the case of Scotland, the idea that suddenly sort of you know, fiscal and economic nirvana would follow independence very quickly was a, was a fantasy, and, and that you know that the the rest of the UK would be obliged to offer Scotland and maintain Scotland in the currency union. Uh, I mean, I think the, you know the, 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 there is a good case to be made for independence, but the Sc- Scottish nationalists weren't doing so. Um, now, what will happen now? And is is there is there a um, is there a a more positive future for Scotland. I think there's only a more positive future for Scotland if 
it does some of the things that the um, the rest of the UK did 30 years ago. You know, so I think Scotland has to become more entrepreneurial. I think you know, in some ways, parts of Scotland, you know, were the, the didn't embrace any of that flexibility, any of that supply side revolution, and so on that we saw. Uh, in, in particularly in, in, in the rest of the UK during the, during the 1980s. And I don't see any sign of that with uh, an SNP administration in charge. So I think, I think Scotland just has to become more entrepreneurial. If it does, it's got a very bright future. Thank you very much, David. Uh, we promised to finish on time. And so therefore, despite the fact that there are several people who've indicated they want to ask a question, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say no. Uh, it only remains for me to first thank David and second to remind you that there are books available just outside and David has kindly agreed to stay uh, and sign copies of the book. He's going to sign mine first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you very much.